This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Montclair, New Jersey. This is uh, David Neiman from the Loyalty Foundation in Hell's Kitchen, New York. This is James Patronelli with Liquid Technology from Fairfield, Connecticut. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. This is the second time we've got two guests on the podcast at the same time. So let's start with a little bit about who you guys are. David, tell us about yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is uh, David Neiman, and I'm the uh, founder and chairman of the Loyalty Foundation. And uh, the Loyalty Foundation is a 501c3 devoted to the purpose of getting children uh, access to technology, education, and tools, irrespective of race, gender, socioeconomic status. I started it in 2019. I was a prosecutor at the Manhattan DA's office before that for 10 years. Um, And naturally, kind of before even COVID took place, I think we all realized, or we realized at the Loyalty Foundation that technology really is the great equalizer. And either you're gonna be programming the computer in the future or the computer's gonna be telling you what to do. And because of that, we basically created the Loyalty Foundation to do so. During COVID, um, obviously technology needs for kids all over the country was at at a dire strait. We sort of rejiggered our organization uh, basically to deliver computers to kids. And we've done so in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Flint, Michigan, Los Angeles, Kentucky, Newark, New Jersey, Yonkers, New York City, uh, Florida, basically everywhere we can, uh, through, usually through partnerships with uh, food banks, shelters, and uh, community-based organizations. And we're just growing and moving. And uh, we got connected with James uh, from Liquid Technology. And they're a great partner of ours, and we're doing some very exciting things because you, of, the, of their ability to sort of take old machines and get them back out into circulation. So, and James is a wonderful dude. Wonderful dude. <laughs> Feel free. Well, thank you very much. Um, James Patronelli, I am the sales director for Liquid Technology. I have three kids. I have uh, a daughter who's uh, been struggling with, well, going through the whole remote learning thing uh, here in Connecticut. Um, she's uh, in first grade. And then I also have uh, four and a half year old twins, boy, girl. Um, So a lot of my life has been uh, managing work life balance with, uh, you know, either Zoom calls for uh, learning for kids or, uh, you know, actually uh, driving kids back and forth to daycare uh, throughout all this. So it explains why you're in Connecticut and not Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really have for parents doing this in the city. Um, I really have a lot of respect for them. I know how challenging that must be uh, for all parents, but uh, you know, it's been a really unique year. Um, and uh, you know, just seeing, you know, how useful the technology is for my kids um, being able to help others, um, you know, really meeting David came along at the right time. I think it's been about a year now when we hooked up and um, just knowing uh, the needs for students um, in all communities and being able to help try to get equipment out to, to them is really important to us. 
Um, how, how does one get into the, the e-recycling uh, business? You know, I, I remember when uh, I got into like the data center business before it existed in, in, in 96 and we were just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what, what that world really meant. Uh, at what point, like, did you have a, a technology background when, when um, you were growing up? Did you, did you have like a passion for recycling computers and electronics when you were a kid? No, I don't know that anybody did because uh, it really wasn't a thing. <laughs> I mean, computers have been around since what the fifties and really readily used. I think probably in business, maybe mid what mid eighties, definitely in the nineties. Um, but there's really never any re technology recycling industry um, probably until I would say late nineties, early two thousands. Um, you know, a lot of companies just use scrap metal recyclers, but nobody actually thought about what was on the hard drives. Um, nobody thought about you know the toxic um, uh, components of technology. Um, so really what happened was, you know, the industry kind of had to start regulating itself. And those regulations really didn't come into place probably until the early 2000s um, with uh, Basel, Basel Action Network in ISRI um, starting up to, to certification programs, East Stewart's and R2. Um, and then also for the media destruction, it really wasn't, um, there really wasn't any oversight until about, I'd say 1994 to 1997, when need kind of stepped in and started looking at this. Um, but in terms of me, um, I, I was a uh, management information systems major at UConn, um, got out of there, um, but I really didn't get into technology until I'd say probably on uh, 2004, 2005, when this industry really started taking off. Um, I had an opportunity and I thought it would be a good fit. Um, and I really liked what, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, still working with machines, computers, but also the uh, sustainability factor of it. So share your story as to how you got into the recycling element of the, the information technology. It was honestly, I didn't know, I didn't know it was an industry. Um, I took a sales job at a technology company and it just happened to be um, selling companies on remarketing their secondary hardware. And part of that was, um, you know, remarketing the excess technology, um, providing the data instruction services, but then the ancillary service was, um, you know, recycling things that couldn't be reused. So over time, it was really focusing on the resale of the hardware. And then as companies kind of realized, you know, the shift in a lot of people's minds was to become more sustainable over time. Um, people started more and more thinking about the actual recycling portion of that. And that's when all the certifications were born. And that's, so it's kind of already in the industry, um, but we kind of changed our philosophy in terms of putting the secondary hardware out there more to really the compliant recycling of everything. So it just kind of was a natural progression over time. So it makes all the sense in the world, like where the computers come from that you can then, you know, repurpose and, and give to children. I mean, what a, a, a marriage made in heaven. I assume then, obviously, that David, your background is all technology all the time. I mean, it's just computers, computers, computers from an early age, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, I, I think technology came to me sort of, uh, sort of by force in some regard. Uh, I mean, first of all, the, as the world has changed, you know, uh, from, I, I remember we were using the dot matrix printers and dot shell and no kind type of things that into college when you had the word processor, but, um, technology is really, it's just like every part of our lives now. And, and it's, you know, the people say technology is the future. It's almost the past at this point. It's so it's, it's been here so long. Uh, when I went to, after college, bounced around and did a bunch of stuff. But then when I wound up going to law school, um, I wanted uh, to help people. That's why I went to law school. And I thought that 
being a lawyer was a was a great industry and a great thing to do um, and had great potential. Uh, and then I wound up, I was going to be a public defender actually in San Diego. And then I wound up getting the job after many interviews at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, so I couldn't really pass it up. And then I worked doing um, just regular street crime. And then, you know, everyone had a phone. So every case became a digital and forensic investigation um, from murder to, you know, anything. Uh, everybody had a phone with them or a computer. By the way, I think that's the first time in podcast history that murder has been mentioned on our podcast. So, you know, if anybody was, was asleep, murder, murder. You know, if, if you don't look into the computers, then you don't find the information and it's all, and you, you know, there's just such a wealth of information and it connects us so much. And there's just constant, uh, the need to, to look into that stuff. I did cyber crime investigations. I wound up, uh, catching a Russian hacker uh, by the name of Vadim Polyakov uh, while he was in Spain, who defrauded StubHub out of $3 million, um, led an investigation to capture him in Spain while he was on vacation. And after that, I worked at a tech company. And really, I, at this tech company, I saw all these young engineers, uh, and mostly white male engineers, who basically had unlimited earning potential and unending jobs, right? Opportunities, they didn't have to work on Wednesdays. You don't look at them cross-eyed or else they're across the street at the next company with more stock options and what have you. So I put my son in a coding class, right? My nine-year-old son who is dealing with uh, all this remote learning like everybody else, uh, I put him in a coding class and I was very excited because he goes to a very diverse school in Manhattan and I was very excited to go pick him up and I found that there were only young, you know, young, young white kids at the class who were the only ones who were able to afford to pay for this extra class. And I was like, that's not going to work. That's not a future that is, is equitable. That's not something that it's just going to leave other kids further and further behind. And that really was so where the concept of the loyalty foundation came in. It's like, let's just be straight. You know, the future is technology. Right. If you don't have access to technology, you don't have access to the future. You can, you're just going to be further and further behind. So that was really the concept, and this was pre-COVID. And then when COVID happened, it was just like honestly, there was a flood of attention, and people really got behind our mission so much so that we were able to just really push really hard to get computers to kids, and it really was motivating people. So I constantly am just trying to drive the price of computers as low as possible. And so one of the things is if we don't have to buy the computers, you know, I was able to purchase refurbished Chromebooks at a very low price, about $100 a piece at the beginning of COVID. Then, then the price spiked as the need went well, all over the place. So constantly we, had, we, didn't, we weren't built for what we wound up doing. So we didn't have the money. So we were literally running down the street, begging for money as we were doing these programs. Tons of volunteers, tons of people who, who've donated their time uh, to just make this happen. And then we got connected to, to James and to, to Liquid. And, and you know, the thought of driving the price down and getting uh, donations or people returning their computers uh, or, or upgrading their systems it was just sort of like a match made in heaven. And one of the things when you do something like this is you get to work with people you like, right? And, and, and James right, right away uh, and, and all the people at Liquid were just into it. 
You know, they're just like, you know, they gave uh, additional things to do. They, they, they donors from them, donations from them, donors through them to us, as well as, you know, so technology sort of has kind of engulfed my life. But honestly, I don't really love technology that much. I hate social media. I don't like, uh, you know, I, I use technology. I do everything that is necessary, but I would not call myself a tech person or particularly proficient. But I do think that it is unlocks the door to many opportunities and all kids need to have the ability to go wherever they want with it. Well, I think that's the that's the that's the most uh, amazing thing that you always get is this this notion that the external perspective is always different. You know, if you have those guys that you worked at um, at the company after you were you were in the DA's office, um, and uh, you know that that were like headstrong in in technology, they try to mystify it in such a way that makes it you know only accessible to them and the people that are really into it. And if you have this this you know kind of equitable perspective and you're applying it to technology and then you you know uh, come come to find out that there's tons of excess you know compute uh, capacity and compute capabilities and warehouses full of you know um, you know unused or, or or you know what's what's considered antiquated in our world is what three to five years and that's it it's just constantly being refreshed um, there that's it seems like a marriage that's made in heaven that will you know only you know increase um, the, the the resources available to these uh, you know underprivileged types of communities that would otherwise not have access to it. So I think it's 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 an amazing story that I don't think could be done by someone who was like a huge technologist because it, you know you wouldn't necessarily have that mindset of um, you know uh, equity. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I have to say I learned a lot of lessons at the DA's office. You know, I, I learned a lot of lessons that. Like oftentimes what was sad about that job was by the time the cases got to me, it was too late. Something really, really bad had happened. Right. And, and you know, you're you're trying to like piece back together justice. Uh, and what I did notice was there weren't a lot of like there wasn't a lot of positive stories. Right. That when you dug into the, the, the stories of the defendants and the victims and everybody in the cases, you it just showed like there needed to be hope, right? There needed to be some type of path. There needed to be someone that they knew cared about them. And that was kind of the the concept of the name of loyalty foundation. It's like loyal to someone else other than yourself. And I think the life lessons and the, 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 the sort of tragic environment that I had to sort of navigate for so long really gave me perspective about what is a way. I think people care a lot and they want to do things, but they just don't know how. And I, and I actually, I think this connects really to 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 James and to Liquid. Like, you know, we were having this conversation yesterday. People want to donate their devices, but they assume that, like, that maybe the data will be okay, right? Like, James, what, I, you know, like, what were you saying yesterday about like uh, about the things about understanding that you need a secure process in order to collect these things so that it goes to the right place and it, it isn't exploited in the way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that 
uh, people, a lot of people want to do the right thing, uh, but I think that they're a little uh, you know, gun shy in terms of handing over their technology assets to just anybody, and they should be. Um, you know, they have personal information on there, and if they don't know how to eradicate that information properly, um, they could be walking into a potential data breach. I mean, if you look at the numbers of people who have sold items on eBay or have dropped uh, equipment off at Goodwill or in any number of situations, and they've been compromised because their machines haven't been, uh, the media hasn't been destroyed properly. So, you know, we want to provide a path for people to be able to donate their assets and feel very comfortable and secure that although they may be donated, um, that those assets are going to be handled properly, the media is going to be destroyed properly, and that if something is not functioning, that we're not going to pass along e-waste to a not-for-profit or a student, but that's going to be recycled properly and not passed along. So, um, you know, I was telling David, you know, the ways to educate people on how to do that. And if they can't facilitate that through something like the Loyalty Foundation or Liquid Technology, you know, there's numbers of ways to do it locally, um, you know, to check uh, you know, your local state municipality websites to see if they have a safe e-waste recycling programs. You know, I just happened to look um, for Hawaii and for New Jersey before this phone call. And both states actually have e-waste recycling laws. So congratulations. Stop, stop spying on me. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations for being the two states that you know, only half of the states in uh, America have actual e-waste recycling laws, if you can believe that. Um, so, you know, people do have a tough time finding the proper way to handle these assets, whether it's through donation or just properly. Well, it is it is Jersey. So in Jersey, the uh, the, the the waste um, uh, logistics is you just kind of throw it on the street. I mean, it's Jersey. Right. So what Jersey makes, the world takes. You know, what, one of the things that I actually want to uh, share with the listeners over here is that information technology, even though it's only three to four decades old, it's got so much opportunity and so many different perspectives and angles to to get in. For instance, James, you know, getting into the the e e waste and e cycling we would not have talked about it uh 10 15 20 years ago so david from a legal perspective there's so many opportunities to be engaged because we are all connected in some way form or shape so again first of all thank you very much for what you guys are doing for for supporting and educating i think we've got a, a purpose in common and james thank you again for providing uh, physical infrastructure to the younger generation so that they can be connected. Now, what I want to know about is you guys. So let's start with David. Mentioned about this uh, hacker in, in Spain. Yeah. What was the turning point for you to say, okay, well, I, w- I, w- I want to do this. I want to be the change agent. I want to I want to make the difference. I want to give back. Uh, at what point of time in your career or your life you started thinking about the younger kids or giving back to community and education. So I, I think, I think it was always in my head like that, that that's what I wanted to do, even why I wanted to become a lawyer in the first place. Um, and then when I worked at the DA's office, it was very much to help people, especially, you know, especially youth, you know? Um, and, you know, I think that being a prosecutor sometimes, you know, some of my most proudest moments as being a prosecutor was releasing people who shouldn't have been arrested. You know, people, prosecutors sometimes get a bad rap and they probably, you know, they're not one kind of autonomous being across all states and places. But, uh, you know, some of the work that I did there, the most inspiring stuff was to correct mistakes that immediately, you know, releasing people from jail, doing those types of things. So it was always human beings and the desire to sort of help what was always a core principle there. But honestly, bureaucracy is, is kind of a, a very frustrating thing to me. And in fact, 
you know, the, the way we, we structure the Loyalty Foundation is we have very little bureaucracy and we hope to keep it lean and no, not bureaucratic because bureaucracy, I think, slows things down. And that sort of ultimately was my frustration at the DA's office. Plus, I, I felt like my world was the size of Manhattan, right? You know, from the top to the bottom, everywhere in between, that was the world of which I would focus on. And so when problems arose, and, and just in each of these cases, as you saw and got to know that the community is involved, it just didn't get to get to the point of where is going to be our solution? Where, how do we get out of this cycle? And so um, then when I worked at a tech company, and, and, and now I'm a, an advisor to tech founders and, and various companies uh, and individuals, I just sort of like at the end of the day, I, I, I was really more interested not in creating my own company, but into sort of creating some type of agent for good, something that is better than me, something that is, 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 is going to achieve something for others. And I think children, it's easy to get people, but you need to raise money, right? It's not just awareness. It's not just to be having good things. You have to have a, a plan that people will be like, I am going to give you my money to help me to help do this. Um, and kids, I think, are uh, we'll all agree. It's, it's, it's something that goes across the political spectrum. No, but everybody thinks that kids should have a future right? Have an opportunity to a future. I don't think there's anyone on this earth really who does not think that. So that's a commonality that we all have. But what there's, some, there's some areas of the political spectrum that like them more before they're born than after they're born, but we'll leave that for another. Yeah, yes. Good point. Very good point. Uh, but um, ultimately, um, kids, I think they want to know how what is it that can make things different? And when I was at this tech company and I saw these young men and these, you know, not, not very diverse group having access to these jobs that were plentiful and well-paying, it just struck me that there needs to be somehow a, 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 a path to get kids from underserved communities to understand the value, the ability that technology can unlock for them. And technology you know, the, the digital divide or digital equity is a huge problem. It's not just that they don't have computers. They don't, their parents don't have email accounts, some of them. They don't have ways to connect to, the, to this world. And so to me, it just was like, come on, that's it, right? We have to start there. We have to make sure that all the pieces associated with getting somebody on a computer and then to get them to start thinking creatively and so that they can come up with the ideas of the future, not only have good, steady paying jobs during the period of time so that they can uplift themselves and their families, but that they have access to be the next entrepreneurs, to be the to be the video music. Everything is on the computer now. Everything. So what's your selection process and, and what are the markets or areas that you're currently focusing on providing these uh, resources? Yeah, so it started down the street. It started in Hell's Kitchen. You know, it started with the Police Athletic League here in New York that uh, that I had had some relationship with when I was at the DA's office. And then, honestly, we've just been going with the flow. The world, the universe has been kind to us, uh, and it's sort of opened up these doors. And we really just work with. At the end of the day, we vet people, and the vetting process is you can you can learn a lot about how they how people communicate. Then they identify. I mean, we have these amazing people: Tazari Robinson in Flint, Michigan, Boys and Girls Club. He's a star. 
Okay. You talk to him for a few minutes and you have a conversation and he identifies who it is. They need to tell you how many computers they need, what you can do. You know, uh, uh, Sheila, Commissioner Sheila Tyson in Birmingham, Alabama and Jefferson Camp from Jefferson County. You know, we got connected to them. We, we connected. We gave them computers and we have a, a great relationship there. One of our advisory members is uh, Dupre Do It All Do from the Lords of the Underground. I don't know if you guys know the, the group from the 90s. Uh, He's an amazing guy and he is our Newark guy. And so, and Philip, you know, I know you're not too far, Montclair and Newark, you should come down and see what we're up to because we are building uh, sort of like a, a really cool, like grassroots community th- thing where we're, we're delivering computers, but we're following up with educational offerings and we're also doing mentorship now. So, I, you know, each community is different and it really starts by the conduit piece. And, and, and actually I count, James and Liquid as like a community partner. It's a very similar thing, you know. It's like I got connected to 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 James and Richard over at Liquid, and we they, we had a conversation, and they were like, you know, we care about the community, we want to get involved, and we're doing things that it comes together. And I've had conversations with other places where we're not on a podcast together all these months and, and later, you know, where we're having conversations and talking about the relationships we're building. So uniquely each place sort of opens up and develops in its own way and in its own time. So what we tried to do, or actually what we, we, we do, I mean, a hundred percent of our kids, of our computers go to kids from underserved communities, meaning they are either associated with a, a food bank or shelter. Like we had one kid who w- was in a, in a domestic abuse shelter that we got connected to, uh, so they can continue their education and their teletherapy because the computers are more than just education. So uh, the, our process is we really work with trusted partners. That's really what it comes down to. How we develop the trust is basically, you know, over a series of, you know, people self-select themselves, I think is really what the truth is. Like people fall off the map. So we don't continue going in that direction. Some people talk about exactly what they're going to do, who they're going to give it to. And then we keep the track of the serial numbers and the contact information so we can make sure we're, we're going in. So the partners that get our computers are just people that have come into our orbit. Uh, and there is some type of attraction that keeps it going. And then momentum is really momentum is, is, my biggest addiction right now is momentum. When do, do you guys foresee any potential concerns with cybersecurity? Kids looking at content or information that they're probably not ready for yet. You know, we, those are great. I mean, those are great questions. I got to say, I mean, the, you know, um, we, the content that they look at, they're getting Google Chromebooks, okay, because they're the cheapest thing, all right? They're getting refurbished Chromebooks. So there's a, the universe is a little bit, uh, is a little bit more narrow. Um, you know, when the kid gets the computer, it's, the, it's his or hers, you know? It's for them to do what they want. And, and I, I, I don't, you know, I think technology is, is super important. And people should have be able to access what they want to access. And it's for their parents to to sort of just to take it from there. I mean, if somebody is going on to places that they shouldn't go, I guess, you know, I'm impressed that they're they're navigating technology. You know, that, that's happening. So congratulations. That part is, is succeeding. Uh, 
but I, I think we just leave it at that. You know, we, we, we really, you know, we're, we were having a conversation recently about whether we should, you know, it, you know, there should be some requirement that they attend one of our courses or something. And I, and I think we don't think that we want people to access technology in the way that they want to. And some, one of our, one of our kids wrote a fantastic ramp. I mean, it's really high quality and I'm blown away. I mean, stuff like that really, if we limit them where they go, then we limit them. So I, I think we just want them to do what it is. And, and you know what, if uh, we're not going to let a, a, a few bad apples spoil the bunch, like you, we, we need to go and, and let, let, let it organically happen. Oh, I totally yeah. understand, and I think uh, it's, it's it's a great initiative, right? There's no question, doubt about it. The the audience the, this is catered towards, the parents do not have that skill set or the education or potentially not even the interest about yeah. the kid's future or privacy or content that they should not be uh, accessing at a very young age. So that does pose a concern. Uh, I think too much information at an early age and kids being sponges could be distracting. It could lead them in the wrong path. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I would rather them, I get, I don't know. I guess I would in this is, I don't know. I've never really had this conversation. So it's never, ever really thought this to this point out, but I think I would rather them go down the wrong path with technology and then, learn it's the wrong path or have, you know, have certain things along the way than to not go down the road of technology. I don't know. Well, if I guess, I, I guess one of the questions is, um, you know, you don't want to make it, you don't, you don't want to make a requirement of them to, you know, have to take a class or whatever, because it only limits, you know, the, the, the scale, but is there some process by which, whether you have one or, or, or you've ever thought of one where you can kind of, I know you, you mentioned taking down the serial numbers and, and yeah. all that, where you can, you know, fairly consistently follow up with them to, to, you know, at least give them the resources once they get acquainted with technology to be able to, to kind of expand their horizons and, 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 and keep them on the right track to a certain extent. Yeah, well, well, we do other programs, one of which is our Gaming for Good program, where we teach kids to make games on Roblox Studio. So what I like about that program is it teaches them something creative, something that they already like, which is games. It also gives them more of an entrepreneurial mindset because once they make their game, they can market it and sell it. So we, we have a Gaming for Good program. We also have our coding program where we teach basics like scratch and those types of things. But we also, we have our open minds mentorship where we bring, you know, people who look like them to talk to them about their paths, you know, like Dupre, for example, who I brought up before, do what I'll do. He, he talked to them about, um, you know, you know, the rap game, you know, the world as he sees it, you know, what's amazing to that was, and those were to teenagers, right, at the police athletically. So it was a very interesting, so I, I think, I think, you know, Nabil's point is good. Uh, but just like all of the communities that we work on, we rely on our local partners to play a role in, in stuff where we can't be everywhere. We can't be in Birmingham. We can't be in Newark. We can't be in all of these places simultaneously. We have trusted, vetted partners in each of those places. We follow up with educational offerings for them to continue with if they want to, you know, whether, you know, uh, and we give them this concept of community mentorship. But individually, where they go with each of their computers, like, you know, I, you know, 
I, I mean, one of the things we're also doing in Birmingham is we're, we're teaching the parents to help teach the kids because the, many of the parents don't have access to technology. So we're going to do courses where we're going to teach the parents how to use Google Classroom so that they can help teach their kids. So it's like the digital divide program uh, problem, you know, digital equity is just it's it's so massive for for many reasons it's not just the computer or the device it, it goes into many many different areas and we try to be a trusted community guide partner you know someone they they know they can rely upon we don't we don't really it's not all about numbers and statistics which i think a lot of philanthropy is sort of off base a little bit like you know it's important to do it's important to keep data and 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 analyze it but it's not the sole driver you know kids receiving the computers and the things that they have created and the pathways that that are set up for them to go through in the future is you know even just telling a kid that you know somebody you've never heard of before from a place you know that you've never seen cares about you and here's a computer from the loyalty foundation and there is such an organization that cares about you it just it really it really makes a difference um and there are you know there are you know we're it's a this is a process you know we're we're, we're not so old you know we're pretty young and we're growing every day and you know and there are are things that are interesting in each community that's the other thing each community is different it's not like one plug in you know here put in this disc and that thing and everything is the same every single community is different one of our communities uh in california with human rights first they you know we have to move, put our educational programs into spanish we're doing tutoring and teaching english it's a, as a program we're helping them learn how to speak English, which is, you know, our, we have an amazing teacher and an amazing program that we're evolving, but every single thing is just totally different. Well, that's outstanding. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were able to do that and the intentions are right and the heart is in the right place, right? It's just a matter of creating that level of education uh, for both the parents and, uh, and, the, and, and the younger generation. So yeah. yeah, thank you again. I think uh, you found your purpose. That's phenomenal. I feel like it. I do. Yeah. Okay. So I can James. speak from experience. I can speak from experience. I could have used those uh, parental uh, classes <laughs> for, for getting kids on classes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, so let, let me ask you this: the um, uh, and and this is really for for both of you. Um, you know, I, I have to imagine you started this thing pre-COVID 2019, uh, when obviously there was always the need. You know, this this digital divide has has always kind of been prevalent. Obviously, you know, the haves you know get all the fancy toys, and the have-nots just don't. Um, uh, in, in general, but obviously that has been significantly exacerbated by the pandemic and e-learning and telemedicine and, you know, just everything is being done remotely there, you know, for, for, for in many of these communities, um, you know, there is no access to some of those, you know, in-person things that, uh, that, that the kids might've been doing. Um, so they're just, you know, either twiddling their thumbs at home or, or, you know, that digital divide is, uh, has been significant. So, you know, how, how did that, I know we touched on, you know, the fact that it's, it's made your world, you know, crazy because you just have to find, you know, you have to get more, more computers into more hands, but, you know, specifically how, um, like what happened, what happened in, in March of, 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 of 2020, how did that, how did that work? Well, that's, I mean, so, you know, we just, uh, we had a small in-class program and at, at the urban assembly, we were teaching our gaming for good program. We had, I don't know, very few kids in it. 
And one of the kids did not have a computer. That's it. So it wasn't even our plan. We weren't doing computers because it was, it's a massive undertaking. You know, Amazon is not doing it with, you know, all these massive companies that have incredible resources, they're not doing it. Right. So, uh, what we did was one of our students didn't have a computer. I was able to find a place to purchase a refurbished Chromebook for $100. So I was like, okay, we moved money around in the budget to go buy the computer for the kid. And we bought him the computer and he was so happy. So he was on our program and he was, you, you could not lose the kid. You know, he was in every class doing everything, you know, pushing hard and amazing. Then when I realized the price of the computers were so low, uh, I was like, you know, I think people would do that. And I put out sort of like a plea on LinkedIn and someone gave us like, I don't know, like $2,500 actually. And I then bought 25 computers with it. And I sent him the information. I was like, look, you 25 computers. We reached out to the Police Athletic League, our partners and, and Rising Ground, which is another organization here in New York. And then I was like, how many kids don't have computers? And then it was just like everybody. Right. And, you know, everybody, even though the, and so then we started buying computers and started doing it. And then it just one community after the other and it just going. And then that's how exactly how we got connected with James. I was like, we don't have so much money, you know, like we need to figure out a way. Can we actually get computers refurbished or can we get people to collect? So I was thinking conceptually, let me go get computers. And I've made a plea and I've, I've got computers, but I'll tell you what, what happens is people kind of give us sometimes stuff that's not unusable, right? They clean out their closets of stuff. So that's sort of a reality that came into into my world. And that was when I started talking to James and Richard and this amazing team at, um, at Liquid, that's really where our whole relationship came from, that conversation and, and sort of that's how, how it really evolved. Yeah. And, you know, so we had, so we started this conversation and, Unfortunately, it was right around, obviously, when COVID started and David has a need for computers. I have a lot of clients with computers, but nobody's in their offices and all the computers are either in Manhattan and nobody's there or Chicago or San Francisco or their laptops were taken home and they're going to be used for the foreseeable future and that these individuals aren't going into the office. So we kind of changed how we're going to our approach and we talked to all the clients who were liquidating their data center infrastructure. Um, and we found a number of clients who were willing to take the funds from the resale of their, you know, upgrades, server upgrades, because, you know, a lot of that was taking place during COVID. Uh, people needed to, um, you know, upgrade their systems on the back end. Uh, so we found some partners who were willing to donate the funds from the resale of those, that hardware. And then we were able to use that to procure Chromebooks. So that's the path we've been taking. And now we're noticing that uh, offices are opening back up. Um, we have more access to PCs and laptops and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to put more uh, hardware in the marketplace. But right. it's mostly, it's mostly laptops they need, right? I mean, the kids don't need like big servers that you're, so is it, is it basically just giving companies the opportunity to convert those into donation dollars for usable equipment that, that makes sense to, to these children, as opposed to sending the children's like a, the children, like a power edge seven or seven twenty. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they don't need a risk of networking or, uh, <laughs> you know, G9 servers. Another good. All right, so with FCC and the Congress approving $3.2 billion in broadband program, how are you or are you working with any of the service providers to make sure that kids actually have or the, the user of the devices got access to these programs? 
I mean, great question. I mean, in, in, in Abil, you're keeping me on my toes here. I mean, you, you, these are the things that uh, I, I read that today as well. And I think I was super excited about it because I, you know, I think Australia, by the way, has broadband across the country for, for free for everybody. So that would be a great thing for us to do in this country. Most, and by the way, every time we do deliver the computers, we, 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 we ask the broadband question. And I will tell you that a lot of these counties, like for example, uh, Jefferson County, uh, who has an, an amazing um, commissioner, uh, Sheila Tyson, who's, she's a star and cares so much about our community. We're gonna do some, a huge program there. Uh, and um, she worked tirelessly to get, um, and expensively, by the way, to get, uh, you know, uh, broadband for the, uh, you know, access to the internet and each community is different. Uh, and so there, you know, it's funny though, I gotta tell you, people come up with crafty solutions, you know, and they, and they piece together things and they work with community efforts. You know, you know, we, I think we're going to more now kind of add it to our mission. The problem is I, I get nervous because we keep adding things to our mission and, you know, it, it becomes more complicated. But I think advocating for sort of uh, broadband for everyone is something that um, that we are going to be really pushing for in the future. Uh, I know Newark, for example, is having a broadband issue and, and we're, we're, we have, we're making a lot of traction in Newark and we're really building something special there. So I think we're going to push for um, you know, I think the downtown area for some of the businesses has been set up, but like some of the other outskirt areas of, the, of, of Newark are falling behind. So that is becoming more and more, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, because it's a lot to add, but we're, we're, we're going to be advocating for that the best we can pushing for it. Um, and, but, but I will say, I would say just, I've been blown away by the amazing work at each of these communities uh, have done for the people in their communities. Um, and it's really inspiring to work with them. So it's like you talk to these people who are like hustling, hustling, hustling to get food to, you know, these communities are, you know, we, we started, we started with food banks and shelters and they were, you know, and cause we knew also if they were, if kids were going to them, they probably didn't have computers and that was correct. Uh, and so it was, you know, it's, it was, it's really, and especially in the beginning, we didn't have money to give to everybody and everybody was asking for stuff, but they were not in a very respectful and, and white, nice and appropriate way. But, you know, we, we almost had to become the arbiter of whose story was the, the most sad or who needed the computers the most, which, which, you know, I mean, we still have that situation because we, we, you know, you know, if, if you want to donate, you can go to loyaltyfoundation.org uh, and donate to any of our programs uh, because that's how we, we, we survive. Um, um, and so we just want to give more and more, but, but I will tell you that, Many communities have figured out the broadband issue because of, but but are paying for it, which is very very expensive, and I don't, and and many are are still suffering. So I think it's something, as a as a society, that we I think can really come together and agree that I think it it, it you know it's we're in the twenty twenty first century. Like let's let's get it together. I think yeah. that's the problem. I think the problem is that you know people take for granted the, the ones that have internet access in, in the major cities. You know the uh, the, the the elitists in uh, in in Hell's Kitchen and Kona, Hawaii. <laughs> um, 
you know, take for granted the fact that, you know, it's just part of your thing, right? You go into a house, you have, you get now, you know, if you have files, you get a gig and then, and then that's that. But if you go into some of these, you know, inner city type communities, if you go now that you've had, you know, COVID kind of pushing the envelope of what is suburban, what is rural um, and how integral connectivity is to the, to the whole piece, it's imperative that, you know, organizations like, like yourselves be, you know, advocates for those communities to take advantage of these programs that they wouldn't otherwise um, necessarily even know were, were, um, were, were in existence. Um, and and that it becomes a, a whole level of advocacy that is uh, is is absolutely imperative to making it usable because there's nothing nothing more useless than you know a computer without connectivity is a is a paperweight or a coffee table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job with uh, bridging the gap that's been created, whether the digital divide or the digital literacy for that matter. So. Thank you and kudos to you guys to taking the initiative. James, you're in the sales position. How has that affected what you do for a living? And where do you see things in the next year or two? Well, we've been talking to all of our clients um, throughout COVID. Um, many of them just basically told us, you know, in terms of our corporate infrastructure, not much is going to change. Um, they're going to be working from home. Most have most of our clients and we work with across all verticals because you know everybody has technology but most people are staying at home and if they are going to be going in they'll be you know scattered and starting you know probably spring at the earliest um so you know there's not a lot there wasn't a lot of opportunities for you know working with them on the corporate it side however uh, we are seeing a lot of companies that are downsizing their space um so maybe if they had remote locations throughout the united states you're, you're seeing some of that scale back um so you know They'll be closing down offices. Um, there'll be um, opportunities for IT infrastructure liquidations are there. Um, they're also kind of changing the way that their offices are going to be structured. So um, what we noticed right off the bat is a lot of people getting rid of their physical phones. Um, you know, people are moving to Zoom calls and using headsets as opposed to actual physical handsets on their on their desks. So you're seeing those kind of small changes in people how they approach IT moving forward. We do see a lot of clients that are kind of downsizing their uh, remote office infrastructure, getting rid of physical phones. Uh, but then uh, on the digital, I mean, the data center infrastructure side, a lot of people are putting a lot of money to that. They need to support more people remotely. Um, so we're seeing a lot of activity there in terms of build outs, upgrades and things like that. So I would expect that to continue. All right. So do you think that there is more and more encouragement for people to actually work from home or work from anywhere based on the conversations that you're having? Honestly, I don't think people are skipping a beat. Um, you know, we work with a lot of people in finance. I know that the, you know, the CEOs of the major banks are pushing to have their employees back, but, you know, people forget, you know, a lot of their talent works, you know, in the suburbs, they're commuting you know, a minimum two hours a day, sometimes four hours a day. And people are finding time to use that time to work, but at different times. So it's people are, you know, you hear people are working as much or more, but it's still a better work-life balance. So I think you'll see a, a lot more remote workforce. Um, and if not, those who do have to go into their, you know, corporate headquarters, it won't be, you know, an everyday type of thing, I don't think anymore. Yeah, so I actually kind of tweeted uh, something uh, regarding what the Goldman Sachs CEO said. There is this mindset of measuring your performance. But he is a DJ. He's also a DJ. That's so true. That, that counts, right? It's, yeah, uh, but there's this, mind, there's this mindset about measuring your performance and success by the number of bums in the seats or the cars in the parking lot. Aren't we at this juncture where we've actually proven that digital transformation and the concept of digital transformation has worked. 
whereby it's time for a workforce transformation and a business transformation. What are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, me personally, I mean, my sales team, um, we used to work all together every day in the city. Um, I feel like I spend more time with them, talking to them now, you know, whether it's Zoom calls or just on the phone and having more in-depth conversations. And they've all, you know, kind of moved in opposite directions, moved uh, outside of the city, either short-term or long-term. I have reps uh, in New Hampshire, Boston, Chicago, upstate New York, Florida, um, San Francisco, and we haven't missed a beat. I feel like the technology's there and, you know, they're able to communicate with their clients on a real-time basis anywhere in the world. Um, so, you know, for us, it's been seamless and it's been great. Uh, so I don't see why we can't, why other people can't replicate this and continue it moving forward. In mankind's defense, they didn't really have much of a choice uh, when, when COVID started. Uh, I will be the defender of mankind, just in case anybody's wondering what role I'm taking in this conversation. But I think now, you know, one of the things we say all the time on the podcast is that, you know, everyone's home has become mission critical. You know, everyone's, you know, internet, I have multiple internet access lines coming to my, my, my house because essentially I become a paperweight. If that internet line goes down, if my power goes out, you know, we're still we're, we're, we're talking about installing, you know, a, a whole house generator um, in, in the summer, because, you know, if, if we lose power and, and connectivity, I mean, that's it. There is no there is no alternative anymore. Um, so, you know, I think to a certain extent, enabling uh, people's homes has made it so that we can you know, go back into this, you know, to, to use an overused word in our world, you know, this hybrid approach where, you know, you can determine when it's necessary to be in the city, when it's necessary to travel and be a lot more thoughtful um, and, and prioritize those things in a way that you just simply weren't able to do even, you know, a year ago, year and a half ago, notwithstanding, forget about, you know, five years ago, six years ago, before Zoom was a thing and before, you know, uh, video conferencing was, you know, accessible to, to everyone, including children. So, even now, you know, I think if you take schools as an example um, and, and kids having, you know, uh, snow days and, and all that stuff, and some of it is helpful for, you know, just the mental condition of, of being able to play out in the snow. But now, you know, kids are going to be enabled once they go back to school to not have to make that binary choice of either you go into school or you don't. If there's some extended disruption that requires you not to be able to go to school, now you can find a way to, to continue uh, a learning environment at home in a way that you simply, it wasn't even a thought that that was a possibility uh, a year and a half ago or two years ago. I think that, that what, you're, what you're saying or what I'm hearing and, and what I've been feeling since COVID is that we, we were a little rigid in the way that we approach, the way we work, the way we act, the way we communicate, all these things. We were, we were struck in a structure. I mean, even the, even the concept of a nine to five workday to me is overly structured. If you work at grade at eight o'clock at night, you know, you might have to have a phone call conversation or meeting with somebody at three o'clock, right? But if you really do your best work at night, why can't you work at night? Why do you have to be there from a specific time? If I mean, like, look, business needs to get done. So things have to happen. So you have to be available to do whatever it is you need to do. But at the same time, why can't you go outside for a walk in the middle of the day? Like, I, I think we get these, we, we, this, and I think it's insane now that people are telling you, you have to come back to the office because business can't happen. And when business has happened, right? Well, we have, we, by no, by no, having no choice in the matter, 
had to all work remotely. And then we start working remotely and we're getting stuff done. And now things are getting a little better. And, and there's, I mean, look, there, there are other economic reasons why we might need to go back to the offices, right? Why we might need to go to restaurants and all these type of things. So we get the economy going in the way it was going. But this, like by saying you have to come back to the office, it's back to that rigid way of thinking that doesn't allow for the innovation that is basically happening. Why can't you work all over the world? Now you can. Right. Like, I think these things have, have broadened our horizon. So why are we going to shrink it back in? Let's go with the flow. Let's go back to the way. That's the, that was the whole purpose of technology, right? It was right to make the world a, uh, you know, a smaller, more accessible place. And, and you know, we, we were moving in that direction anyway. But, you know, this has forced everyone to this, you know, kind of accelerated. We're all in the same boat in a way that, you know, regional situations, even the blackout in 2003 or, or, or some type of, you know, disruption from a weather perspective, everyone is in the same boat, whether you're in Ghana or you're in Kona or you're in New York City. Um, everyone has experienced this level of disruption. Guys, this has been absolutely phenomenal. I, I love what you guys have done and how you're basically bridging the digital divide that's been created. And the idea about you know, passing it on to the next generation and the fact that you are focused on the digital literacy. What I want our audience to take away from your trials and tribulations over your career and your life, and for each of you, based on what you know today, what is it that you would do differently? What I would do differently? That's a that's a, like a very heavy question. I I, I I have to say, right now, you, you I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. So I don't know how I got here. I mean, I know how I got here, but exactly how it has all come together to be at this place right now was bizarre. I wouldn't have traded any of it. I mean. The, the 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 dumb things that I did that fortunately, you know, I didn't get in big trouble for, and the good things that I did, uh, all of them sort of. I I just think that where you are now is where you are, uh, and I wouldn't change where I am right now. Before I made choices that I would not have made, but I'm now glad that I made those choices because now I feel like I'm in the right place. So. I don't know if I could get to where I am right now, having not gone the, the circuitous route that I went. So I think I want to, maybe the one thing I do want to change is I want, maybe I want to listen a little more. You know, I, I feel like I, I have a lot to say and, and I'm saying it and I'm, I'm talking a lot and there's, there's more even to learn by listening more. And I think that's probably what I would say. I don't even know if I answered the question, but that, that's sort of- I'm actually, I'm actually like, this is this this entire, the, 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 the whole podcast, you know, platform is unique to me, which is why I speak more than, than, than I ask questions. But I, I'm always reminded of that Larry King uh, phrase of, you know, I never learned anything when I was talking. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I have a hard time heeding that advice also, but I guess it's uh, it's good advice for the next generation. Uh, yeah. Clearly I'm ruined on it, but. Uh, how about you, James? You know, like David, you know, I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at right now. A beautiful family and I have a job that I love and feel like I'm doing you know, good for the community. Um, but, you know, I would say I wish I was a bit more focused in my 20s. Um, you know, I did come out of college with numerous degrees and I, you know, I feel like I, I wish I got more immersed in that technology um, in, in my first couple of years in New York. I feel like, you know, I probably left a little bit on the table there, uh, living in New York in your early 20s. You know, <laughs> sometimes you don't work as hard as you're supposed to. And I think it took uh, me meeting my wife right around when I was 29 and really snapped me into shape. So yeah, I'm not saying I would have been any further along at this point, but uh, who knows? 
What advice would you give the younger younger James or the younger David? I, I would say uh, get lost. Don't don't be afraid to get lost. And then and then you know you know keep keep finding your way back to your heart and what you really care about and what matters. For me, it would have been uh, never stop learning. Uh, never take a break, you know, whether it's, you know, keep taking classes, um, you know, keep trying to learn something new. Uh, don't take any breaks in that because it's, it's hard to get back on the bike. Uh, if you've kind of, if you, if you stop that and, and always travel, travel as much as you can. I know it's tough to say in this environment, but see the world. Well, thank you very much, guys. This has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I appreciate you guys joining us today. One of the things that I, I got from both of you is that at the end of the day, You've got to be able to find your purpose. You've got to be able to identify what we are here for. And you guys are taking this initiative of not just providing a tool to the younger generation, but bridging this gap that has been created because of people in places and education, right? It kind of fits in with our core premise and purpose as Nomad Futurist to be able to give people and the ability to work anywhere, anytime. This is the digital age. This is the digital rush. Thank you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.